You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. get into it shall we my first point god has come near to us in jesus can i hear amen you know one of my favorite movies is indiana jones actually that's my brother's favorite movie he was so obsessed with it that my father threw it out i'm not joking this was by the way when he was in elementary school why was an elementary school kid watching a pg-13 movie i don't know but during his summer days he would just watch the trilogy the VHS, by the way, he would constantly watch it to the point where my, my, my father realized I had become an idol. Really, more than an idol, it was just a time waster. He wanted him to you know, study for SATs. I'm like, the kid's 10 years old. Come on, Dad. So he threw it in the garage, in the, not garage, but the garbage. It's funny because a few months later, I ended up buying uh, the DVD collection, which we still have to this day. But the reason why I love this movie, and I think a lot of you guys, if you haven't seen it, you must watch it. If you don't want to watch it, watch it, is that because it reflects a constant theme in the lives of people everywhere, the pursuit of knowing God. Indiana Jones was in the search for the Ark of the Covenant. In the second movie, he was in search of some power that a village needed to save its people. And the third is, well, the well-known search for the Holy Grail, right, the cup that Jesus used during the Lord's Supper. And as people... We're all in search for our Holy Grail. Turn to your neighbor and say, you searching? So many people, even unbelievers, all seek to connect with the divine. Most recently, Jimmy Kimmel, late night show host, <clears throat> he shared a touching story of his recent child's birth. Ultimately, the child was born fine, but within the next hour or so, the baby had sudden complications. He was sent to NICU because of his breathing. I forget the gender of the baby, but let's just call it a boy. He began turning blue, and the doctors realized that he wasn't getting enough oxygen in his blood. So Jimmy Kimmel, in front of the millions of viewers that watch him every single night, a man who has so many times made fun of Christians, a man who has made fun of people who believed in God, said, you know what? Thank you all for your prayers. In fact, he said, he admitted, even my atheist friends were praying for me. Why? Because it's in moments like that that makes anyone, especially those who deny God, begin to accept their powerlessness and hope for something or someone bigger and more powerful than their circumstance to save the day. There's people who rely on horoscopes, hoping that their day or their week is as optimistic as a piece of paper says it'll be. People resort to meditation or other forms of spiritualism to fellowship with the supernatural. You see, our hearts are universally, our religious by nature. We all want to know that there is something bigger than us out there. That's why X-Files was a huge hit. People thought, even though they don't believe in God, surely there's got to be something out there in the vast universe. So whether it's God or not, people all worship something. Maybe for them it's money. Maybe for them it's aliens. Maybe for them it's happiness, success, power. The list goes on of little gods and idols, on and on and on, but nothing seems to work. So a lot of people believe that the biggest problem is this. That God, he just can't be known. He's invisible. 
that he's unseen, unmeasurable. He cannot be proven empirically or that he is too distant. Why would he want anything to do with us? And even those who claim to have found God or have found a reason to a way to touch him at least, they really end up in frustration in their inability to practice it perfectly and purely. But the truth is this. We need to understand something about ourselves. And the more we begin to understand who we really are, we'll begin to understand who God is. Because seeing our imperfections make us realize why it makes sense that we're so alienated from God who is absolutely holy. And why is that? Because we are unholy. We've messed things up. Now, have you guys ever been on a date? I'm sure many of you guys have. What do you do before you go on a date? Do you just come out of the gym and go? Of course not. Do you just wake up, roll out of bed? Of course not. You wash up. You put your makeup on, if you're a girl. You put deodorant on. You put our best and best and cleanest clothes on. We style our hair. We brush our teeth. We do everything we need to to do it, make it right. But what if the date comes, let's say, 30 minutes early? Your roommate or your parents or your sibling says, hey, should I open the door? What do you say? You yell down, not yet. I'm not ready. For the average person in the world with all their hopes and dreams of meeting the almighty, powerful, and holy God, it would be like the dating scene like, like I've just mentioned. They would not be ready because their lives are far from being ready to really encounter a holy God who judges sin. Similarly, this was Jacob's experience too. So as I was reading through this passage, all I could think of, right, as I was thinking about Jacob's life and his situation, all I could think of was a song to the sitcom show Friends. You know it. So no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. You're broke. Your love's life's DOA. I had to look that up. It means dead on arrival. It's like you're always stuck on second, in second gear. When it hasn't been your day, you're... No, you're weak. Come on. You know what? When it hasn't been your day, that's the last time I do this interactive thing. Your day, your week, your month, or even your year. There you go. Life has pretty much blown up in Jacob's face. Long ago, he had schemed to talk his brother Esau into selling him his birthright. And now he's gone a bit further because now his mother cooked up a plan to deceive his father and steal his brother's blessing. Isaac, the dad, coming to terms with what happened, he still loved the older son, Esau, and obviously less happy with his younger son, Jacob. And as for Esau, man, he was still angry, still really angry. In fact, he vowed to kill Jacob once and as soon as his father passed away. So here we have Jacob, who was a homebody, a favorite of Rebekah, but he was now being sent away, or I should say he was running away in order to be protected from Esau's anger. So Jacob, he headed off for his uncle's Laban's home in Haran. It's about a 450-mile trek away and in a place that he's never been to. Jacob was undoubtedly disillusioned. He was guilt-ridden, shamed, and fearful. And as he traveled alone for nearly half a thousand miles, you can bet he had a lot of time to think about his life. He had a lot of time to think about his actions, a lot of time to think about the fears that lay ahead. Probably the world's worst road trip, right? When nighttime came, what happened? Jacob himself found himself to be in an open place. It's not too far from the town of Luz. But Jacob, he was tired and he was discouraged. And so he decided to stop for the night to go to sleep. Like 
there wasn't a big push to get to the city for lodging. He just kind of gave up at that moment and said, you know what? <laughs> I'm in open space, which you never really want to be because of bandits and things of that nature. And he says, I'll just sleep here. I'm just going to sleep here. I, I'm not even trying. I'm going to sleep here. And when he laid down, he didn't even bother to crumple up his cloak or his garment or try to bring some grass together to form a nice little comfortable pillow for his head. Instead, he just laid his head on a stone. His head on a stone. It's like his sleeping arrangements was a reflection of his mood. Cold, hard, and hopeless. If that's where you're at today, know this. It's God who comes near to hopeless people like us. Amen. He's drawing near to you today, whether you know it or not. He is. And that's what happened to Jacob. As he tried to sleep, Jacob, he had a dream. A dream that was so vivid that when he woke, he knew that he had encountered the living God. Now this vision was revelatory because it had two parts. One was this, the seeing of the vision. But secondly, hearing God speak to him. So let's talk about the vision for a second. He saw a stairway. Now, that's a far better term than the word ladder, and our Bible says stairway, obviously, but we all know the children's song, Jacob's Ladder. Jacob, he saw a stairway extending from the earth into heaven. And at the top stood the Lord, and ascending and descending on the stairway were the angels of the Lord. Now, what does that all mean? This means, this means what, that what is pictured here as heaven touching earth by the way of stairway it means access to God. And the angels of God going up and down the stairway only suggests things that you and I can't see every single day or ever really. That God, he's doing something. That God is working. That God is doing something in the affairs of the world. And that's what I believe this text is telling us. And that's what I believe God is wanting Jacob to understand too. Because he's saying, you know what? Your life is hard. You're escaping this and you think you're wretched and all this stuff is kind of just being overwhelmed and, and, and burning upon you. But let me tell you this, I am coming to you. I am near to you in your time of need. But the Lord graciously doesn't just leave Jacob to figure out the vision because the other part is this, God, he also spoke to Jacob. Now from the top of the stairway, God spoke. He says this, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the south, north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Now notice what God actually promises to Jacob. It is the same thing he promised Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. God, he promised his presence to Jacob. He says, I am the Lord. I am with you. I will not leave you. This is exactly what Jacob, he needed to hear. And this is exactly what you need to hear too today. Maybe in some way you feel lost. Maybe today you feel a bit abandoned. Maybe today, even in your marriage, you feel alone. Maybe you feel like your family members don't understand you, that they have remained distant from you. God is saying this to you today. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am with you, and I will not leave you. This has been the promise to Abraham. This was his promise to Moses. This was the promise to the Israelites. And folks, this is God's promise to you too. My spirit will go with you, and I will give you rest. God says to his people, I will give you rest. 
It's the same promise reiterated by David in Psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For you are with me. But not only that, God also promises Jacob the land once promised to Abraham and Isaac. And let me tell you, this is a huge encouragement for Jacob to hear. Look, Jacob's family, right, the Abrahamic family, they were really wealthy, like really wealthy. For, and for whatever reason, Jacob had left all of that, and he had moved on to this brand new kind of journey, this brand new chapter in his life with almost nothing to his name, nothing. In fact, when he reaches Uncle Laban's house for looking for a wife, against all customs, against all traditions, he should be coming with gifts, but he comes with nothing, nothing at all but his hands, his empty hands of labor. But here again, God is promising Jacob just what he promised his grandfather Abraham. Even though Jacob seemed to have nothing, God reminded him that he was the heir of all that he could see. So let me ask you this, folks. Are you frustrated with all that you have, or really I should say, all the things that you lack? We need to stop thinking that having it all means to have what the world has. And by the way, this isn't just a monetary thing. It could be a job, a car, marriage, or family. I want to tell you right now, as the Asian culture goes, having a son is a blessing. But having a son and daughter is even better, they might say. So, I have a daughter. My firstborn was a girl. And when Junior was born, that means I have a girl and a boy, people began to immediately say to me, oh, you're so blessed. You're so lucky. And here's the thing that they would say often, you're so rich. You're so rich. That's an Asian term. Because now you have a complete family, as it were, they would say. And to that I say this, no. I'm rich because I have Christ. If I have another daughter, I'd still be rich. You get that? If I didn't have any children, I'd still be rich. If I was not even married, I would still be rich. If I only had a congregation of 10 people who loved Jesus, I'd be rich. If my body, healthy enough to work each day, flipping burgers, but I know Christ, I know I am far richer than the hundreds of billionaires out there who do not know Christ. So in Christ, I am rich. What about you? Folks, you may not have what he has. You may not have what she has. You may not be as accomplished as that person, and your car may not be as fancy as someone else's. You may not be married. You may not have any children. You may be looked down based on the color of your skin or on the basis of your culture, your family, and your background, your looks, your profession, or the hundreds of other faults and failures the world claims you have. But if you have Christ, you are rich. If you have Christ, no amount of money can compete with the everlasting joy you currently possess. If you have Christ, nothing can take away the love that God has for you. So it may seem that you have nothing. It may seem that you're broke. It may seem you're hopeless. It may seem that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But as God reminded Jacob of his heirship, so God reminds you today of yours, that in Christ you are rich. Lastly, not only did Jacob, not only did God promise Jacob his presence and the land, but God now promises Jacob to be a blessing. Not just 
to be blessed, but he now promises that, Jacob, you will be a blessing. Look at verse 14 once more. Our descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. This is so weird because this is just the opposite of what Jacob's situation looked like. Jacob wasn't a blessing. This guy was a disgrace to his family. I mean, I'm willing to bet that all throughout his father's massive camp, they all heard about the scandalous deceit and the manipulation. I mean, now he was sleeping on a rock because he thought he didn't even deserve to sleep on anything else. He slept in shame. He had to flee for his life because of something he had done. And maybe you're in the same boat with Jacob. You're disgraced by the way things have transpired in your life today. You're embarrassed by the way you got married or, the, or, or had children or got that job or bought that car or made that deal or conducted yourself in front of your family, in front of those employees, in front of your friends. And as you hear me preach, you're thinking, yes, I want God. I want to be used by God. But then you're thinking, why would God want anything to do with me? How could God use someone like me? I'm so screwed up. I literally have nothing else to offer God. Why couldn't I have done well in school? Why couldn't I have stayed in school? School. Why can I have waited till marriage to have kids? Why did I have to say such hateful things to my parents or to my spouse or to my children? You see, we're all riddled with guilt and shame, and the thought of God wanting to use me as a blessing to you is laughable. Maybe you feel just even more condemned. But to that, I read from 1 Corinthians 1, because God says to you today, if that is in your situation, if that is your situation, if that is your mentality right now, and that is what your heart's attitude is, he says this through Paul, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were noble birth. But, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. In your brokenness, folks, let God be your restorer. In your shame, let God be your comforter. In your guilt, let God be your forgiver. In your pain, let God be your healer. And folks, in your sins, let God be your Savior today. And when you surrender all the wonderful and even not so wonderful things of your life, you will then begin to see the transforming power of God's grace in your life. You will see and be surprised at how God can use such a broken wretch like me to be a blessing to you. You see, what God said to Jacob, it matched what God showed Jacob. God, he's not far off. He's not uninvolved. This wasn't just a message to Jacob because it's here that we find what God intends to do for the whole world through Jesus. Hear me out, folks. How does this connect to Jesus now? Let me read you something that I think will blow your mind. John chapter 1. 
verse 45 and down. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law about the one whom prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then this is what he said. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is giving me goosebumps just sharing this with you here. Let me read the very last line again to you. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The angels were ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that He Himself is the stairway on the Son of Man. He's saying, I am the access point to which heaven touches earth. He's saying, I am the ladder by which God, He works through the affairs of the world. You see, Jesus is saying, I am the bridge. I am the mediator. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the stairway to heaven. You see, all the promises of God made to Jacob, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one who has come into the world to save us. Not anything else in this world. Jesus alone. He is the one whom God comes near to us. And so today, so today here's our encouragement. God, he promises, the promises of God are just as true today as it were back in Jacob's day. It doesn't matter how bad you messed up, folks, or how disgraceful you have been, or how broken and rejected you feel, and it does not matter how fearful you might be. Why? Because our God is greater than all that. All that. And in Jesus, he has come to rescue the most undeserving Jacobs. Jacobs like me, and Jacobs like you, and Jacobs like everyone here, and to turn us into princes of his people, sons and daughters of God. He did it with Jacob, and he'll do it with you. Amen? And that leads us to our final point. What must we do now? but we must now respond to God's grace. Now, we've all dreamt before. Some dreams are profound that you might have. Some dreams are fun. Some dreams are scary. But eventually, you wake up. You wake up, you shake it off, and you get back to what's normal. But we know for Jacob, this was not just a dream. This was an encounter with the living God. I mean, how do you shake that off? And the answer to that is you don't. You respond. And that's what we see Jacob doing. He responded to the majesty and grace of God that was just revealed to him. And in his response, I see a pattern, a pattern that you and I ought to kind of follow 
as we, as we respond to the grace of God in Christ. So how did Jacob respond? And this is the first thing he did, and that he was afraid. Turn to your neighbor and say, be afraid. And then say, be very afraid. Now this isn't the same kind of fear that Jacob had before, you know, when his older brother wanted to kill him. This is the fear of God. The fear of God is the realization that he was actually in the presence of a holy God. And so he trembled before his majesty. When uh, my brother and I, we went to go see Wizards games. This was back in the day when Michael Jordan was actually on the team. And we got amazing seats. We were probably two seats behind the team's bench. And so there was Michael Jordan. And there was kind of warming up and... Next one was Jerry Stackhouse. Don't worry about him. But there they were, and their backs were turned towards us, and Danny says, Say his name. Say his name. I said, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. Say his name. You don't understand. So I said, Michael! And you see Jordan go, Just that look, because he made he he looked at me, by the way. Like we made eye contact. <clears throat> Did he ever do that with you? I didn't think so. He did that with me. And for that moment, I felt like I was in the presence of old Michael Jordan. Jacob, with that vision, in that dream, he trembled for the first time. He experienced the fear of God as he trembled and shook before the majesty of the Lord. And God, he is speaking to you today, right now. He is declaring his living words into your heart right now. My voice, my voice is not mine but his. My words here are not mine but his. Today, you are all here before a holy and majestic God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and we cannot come before him with such casualness, with such a cavalier heart. Because before every service, brothers and sisters, there needs to be a humbling down. You get that? Don't come here thinking, that's my seat. I'm going to go ahead and sip on my white mocha, pina colada, whatever it is, and say, just do my thing. And then once I'm done, I'm going to head out. There needs to be a humbling down, a getting ready type of mode that makes us realize that you are coming before God. That he controls life and death, that he controls your life and your death. That if it were not for his grace, that we would have been destroyed by our sins. We must, like Jacob, have the fear of God to have a humble, awestruck response to God's grace. But not only that, Jacob, you see, not only responds by fearing God, but he also responds in worship. According to verse 18, Jacob took the very rock that he had slept on and he stood it up. It's an unnatural position so others would actually take notice. And then he took oil and he poured it on the rock and he set it apart as a memorial to God and he named it Bethel, house of God. Now, Jacob, he wasn't creating a relic. He wasn't trying to build an idol. He's not trying to build a graven image or build a shrine. Isaac was establishing a witness to the promise which God had made to him in that spot so that everyone would know who passes by that God was here. And it would also allow Jacob to remember his first big encounter with the living God. So we too must worship God. 
We too must, must respond by remembering what He has done. We need to journal the greatness of God's grace upon our lives and to testify of His goodness. We must worship Him. And it's not because God, He keeps track of, his, of our attendance. We come to worship because we need to be reminded of what God has done. We come to worship because as a body, we are living witnesses of the power of the gospel. We come to worship because He is worthy of our continuing gratitude. So don't forsake the gathering of believers. Don't forsake your worship of God, no matter what. Amen? And finally, and this is what I'll end with, the last thing Jacob did was that he committed himself to the Lord. Committed. Now in verse 20, it may appear that <clears throat> it's like a let's make a deal type of situation with God. He goes, God, if God will do this for me, then I will do this for you. So maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound right. I know we're not supposed to do that. But this commitment of Jacob to God was actually kind of a baby step understanding of God's promises because it's through Jacob's word of commitment that he was simply mirroring, get this, what Jacob was saying was simply a mirror of God's promises. So God says, I will be with you. And Jacob says, instead of if, he's saying, since God, you will be with me. I will commit to you. It's not if, he's saying, because you will be with me, I will commit myself to you. When God says, I will watch over you, Jacob says, not if, but since God, you will watch over me, I will commit to you. And when God says, I will bring you back, Jacob says, it's not about if you will, but since God, you will bring me back, I will commit myself to you. Jacob's commitment went all the way to the commitment of his wealth. He didn't just say, God, you'll provide. No, he says, God, since you will provide for me, I'm committing my tithe to you. He was already committing to God the money he had yet to receive from God. Let me ask you this, guys. How are you committing to God? How are you committing to the God who has already committed himself to you? Are you giving him just a part of your heart, a part of your wallet, a part of your time, a part of your resources, a part of your affections? How committed are you? In the ways that you can commit, can you commit more? It's not a deal that we're trying to strike with God. This is a response to the commitment God made to you already. So we know that Jesus is the ladder in which God has come near to us. But by his grace, we have to respond by revering God, being fearful of God, by worshiping God, and by committing ourselves to God, not only with our time, but with our everything else. And if you're attempting, if you're attempting to climb Jacob's ladder, then you've already missed the point. The truth is, Jesus is our ladder. So pursue him. He is our access point by which we can get to a holy God. <coughs> so today, surrender. Surrender yourself over to him. Even as an already believer, surrender your will, surrender your fears, surrender your heart over to him. And since God is with you, commit to him. Because unlike the relationships of the world, the commitment God makes with you is one that will not break. Because it has been made on the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our stairway to our Father. Amen? Let's pray.
Can I give you guys a minute or two to respond? To respond to the sermon? To respond to the words of God that has been spoken to you today? Maybe the way that you've been approaching God has been too casual, too cavalier. Maybe it's been just kind of, I'll just do what I want based on how I feel when I want. Maybe some of you guys are fearful to commit to him too because you're just unsure. But God is saying, you don't need to fear because I've already committed myself to you. And because I've committed myself to you, I already have you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to provide for you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is not a negotiation. I am here for you. And God is saying, won't you commit to me? Won't you surrender yourself to me? Search your heart and see what you must surrender, what you need to surrender, the idols that you have created in your life, perhaps. The insecurities that you have placed before you, keeping you from completely and wholly giving yourself over to him. Let's take a minute and just pray. And now as we approach this throne of grace, I ask as we, that we consider the message of the Lord's Supper. What is the message? It is one of self-examination. It is a realization that you cannot do it yourself. And God in all his infinite mercy and grace gave us his son Jesus who died on the cross for you and me. And so if you consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, it is unholy, it is not right, it is unchristian, it is poor to harbor sins, to hold on to men and being unrepentant. And so God says, before you come, let yourself examine your heart I'm not going to judge you, but you have to judge your own heart. Get yourself right before the Lord. And if you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, you can join us in the Lord's Supper. So take a moment and pray and consider the sins of your life. And if they are unrepented, repent them before the Lord. And when you're ready, please come to the side. And join us for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. I read from 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 11. If I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can center this prayer around that memory. The prayer for this bread that should call everyone to mind of Jesus' body broken on our behalf. The prayer of the fruit of the vine here, this juice that should call everyone's mind to Jesus' shed blood that established a new covenant. And yet, Father, while there is so much to be thankful for, we are also sorrowful because it was our sins that led to this great sacrifice. Father, today in this Lord's Supper, we acknowledge the fellowship of those partaking that they are our brother and our sisters in Christ. And we, Father, want to express our desire in humility and reverence, a manner worthy, Lord, of your great sacrifice, that as we take it, this is our act of worship to you. We thank you and we love you for all that you've done. And we thank you that your spirit continues to refine us and work in us. Help us to grow closer as a church, united as a body, to glorify your name and to lift up the name that is above all names. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.